Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Something in the world, something in your world looks different. Something deep inside got me wondering why I don't understand why I can't put my finger on what the f is off was missing. You're distant And I'm spinning Don't ask questions usually Got the answers that I need Intuition telling me You might have had a gut feeling, or something is part of your gut instinct. You might have had butterflies in your stomach. Uh, you might also, when you're feeling anxious, uh, or, or well, anxious is good, uh, you might have had a really bad feeling in the pit of your stomach. By the way, that, that phrase has been corrupted. People these days talk about how they have a pit in their stomach. I have a pit in my stomach. Well... Unless you're very careless about eating cherries, you probably don't have a pit in your stomach. But you might have a bad feeling in the pit of your stomach. Uh, and that's all kind of connected to our belief somehow that our feelings and our thoughts are connected to our guts. It's a really, really old feeling. In the second segment, we will tell you exactly how far, far back this goes. I mean, it's really kind of astonishing. Uh, and in terms of the credibility or credence we attach to it, I think that's sort of fluctuated over the decades. But I think we're living through a period right now where investigators are looking at this pretty seriously. So that's why we're beginning, or very seriously, uh, that's why we're beginning with Diego Borges, a gut-brain neuroscientist associated with the Duke School of Medicine. Uh, you might want to also uh, check out his TED Talk, How Does Our Gut Talk to Our Brain? Uh, Diego Borges, thank you so much for being here and welcome to our conversation. Thank you for uh, having me. So... Sometimes the gut is referred to as the second brain. Um, how how realistic a way of talking is that? I mean, your research suggests that that's not a that's not not a bad analogy. Maybe. Ah uh, yes. Uh, in fact, um, I uh, the research that is emerging uh, shows that um, not only we have a complex network of neurons inside of our gut meaning a brain-like uh, system, but also that this ancient brain that figures out uh, the food that we eat uh, goes back to the very beginnings of um, multicellular organisms, meaning that perhaps this, is, this was actually the first network of neurons that began to assemble in uh, animals and uh, that later on gave rise to more complex organisms. So it's not just a Homo sapiens thing, and and it appears to be kind of a highway, right? We, we sometimes talk about a gut-brain axis. That doesn't seem to be right, 
But your research suggests that there's sort of a, an information highway connecting the gut to the brain. Say more about that. Uh, yes, uh, Colin, we, uh, in my laboratory, we have been studying the gastrointestinal tract for uh, the last 10 plus years. And in the last few years, it, have be, it, it has become very clear that the gut and the brain not only communicate, but they seem to have a very attuned conversation <laughs> uh, to be able to exchange uh, information about the specifics of the food that we eat. As you may uh, have noticed at, at, at dinner, or you will notice at lunch, um, it is very different uh, the feeling of eating a salad uh, versus a salad with uh, lettuce and uh, and fruit or lettuce and nuts. You know, somehow our system seems to figure out what it is that we just ate and then adjust uh, for future consumption. And, uh, and that is the, the part where we have focus uh, and we have discovered a system that is able to detect, just like the tongue detects uh, taste, uh, the gut has also a sensory system that detects uh, the specifics, the specific nutrients uh, in the food that we eat and tells the brain what we just ate. You've got a great story about that. It's sort of an anecdote that maybe is part of the eureka moment that gets you interested in some of this research. Because I think that we think that whether we like something, whether we want to have something for lunch or dinner, is mostly a conversation that's taking place between our taste buds and some parts of our brain. But you had a friend who had gastric bypass surgery, and explain what happened. Uh, yes. Uh, so in 2006, um, I was at a Thanksgiving uh, celebration, and then a friend began asking me uh, questions about uh, nutrition because I was studying, at that time I was in my uh, doing my PhD in nutrition, and she told me uh, her story of uh, undergoing gastric bypass surgery she, uh, to be able to treat some of the complications of obesity. And essentially, there were three things that really jumped to my ear. The first one was that within six months of her surgery, she had lost about 40% of body weight. So she said, um, I was about 300 pounds. Uh, just do the math, right? Uh, and the second thing that she said is that within one week of the surgery, her diabetes was completely resolved, that she did not need more insulin shots. And that is a very well-documented uh, phenomenon uh, these days, but it, at that time it was um, completely unknown. But the thing that really surprised me is when she said that before the surgery, she could not even look at sunny-side-up eggs, that uh, looking at the yolk will make her queasy. She said, but after the surgery, so after my gut was altered, not only I could um, eat uh, fried eggs, but I actually had a craving for the yolk. So she said, you are studying nutrition. Explain to me, how is it that uh, rewiring the gut alter my food preferences? Right. So it is possible that our cravings, if I really decide I've got to have shrimp tonight, uh, it could be not something that my brain's telling me, not something that my taste buds are priming me for. It could be my gut saying, that's what we want down here. Uh, yes. And in fact, um, Colin, that's uh, what uh, the our data suggests now, that uh, the gut is the ultimate frontier where once we eat, the gut is in charge of 
not only figuring out specifically what we just ate, but telling the brain, we just ate this food, <laughs> you may need to compensate or you may need to drink more water, right? So the, the gut and the brain are in this constant communication to be able to adjust uh, not only the amount of food that we eat, but also the uh, type of food that we eat to adjust our food preferences. So, Diego, it, it might just be possible that the woman I live with considers a meal incomplete if it does not include dessert. And I've always seen that as just sort of a predilection of hers. Um, but it's possible that the thing we're talking about right now has something to do with sugar cravings. Tell us more. Absolutely. And uh, so in uh, 2018... Um, we discovered that the gut, like the tongue, had uh, these sensory cells, uh, these very tiny little cells that very rapidly will be able to detect sugar. And through a direct connection with a, with a nerve, with a vagus nerve, the main cable connecting the gut and the brain, we'll be able to tell these tiny cells that we call neuropods. So these neuropods will be able to tell the brain in milliseconds that sugar just arrived uh, in the gut. So then we wonder like, what is, what is this, what, what is the brain doing with this information? So last year, uh, we published a second, uh, a article in which we demonstrated that, uh, this communication that the neuropods are sending is essential for, uh, in this case, an experimental animal, uh, to be able to figure out, uh, what is, sugar and what is sweetener because even though those two substances are sweet sugar is sweet and sweeteners are sweet but sugar has a little bit more it has calories right and uh, essentially our sweet tooth comes from uh, the gut so to speak now the so the gut has a connection to the brain the gut so to speak talks to the brain gives the brain information um, how much of a two-way street is that? Um, I'll give you an example. I, I bet you most people have this, uh, uh, but I definitely do. A person in my life who, if I have dinner with that person, I'm almost inevitably, no matter what I had for dinner, going to have an upset stomach later because I find these dinners stressful. Um, and and that suggests that the emotions that at least I think are starting and transpiring in my brain are communicating somehow uh, with my gut. So what do we know about that part? Um, that's a phenomenal question, uh, Colin. So, of course, uh, this is a dialogue, mm -hmm. right? Um, and uh, we, our, our team, has uh, uh, worked a lot of the details about this gut to brain. But it is becoming very clear by the work of um, uh, others, uh, other scientists in, in the field, and some of our work too, that the brain is also ha has the ability to tell very quickly the gut, uh, you know, not only like I already got the sensory information, but perhaps modulate how is that the gut uh, reacting to uh, the, the food and the microbes that are living inside of the, um, the gut. And uh, this is very important because for instance, there are uh, a prominent health issues like uh, chronic anxiety uh, that will affect also um, the gastrointestinal tract. So uh, people will have some GI disorders associated with chronic anxiety and other uh, mental health issues. 
Yes. Uh, but I think that in the in the in the in the future we're we're gonna know more about specifically like what areas of the brain are controlling uh, not only like the sensory reaction, but how much the gut moves, when does it move, and so on and so forth. Yeah, getting ready for the show today, I read uh, quite a bit of research about this, and it, it seems like a, a frontier right now that's kind of opening up um, that whole question of uh, of the emotions and, as you say, maybe even mental illness and things like that and the way that all of that may connect to the gut. Um, I want you to tell another story because I think this is important as well. Because uh, we think of the gut, I mean, it's a living part of our, our, our bodies, but I, don't, I think of my gut in pretty inert terms. But you had the opportunity, I believe, at a conference to see kind of a freestanding gut, uh, a gut that was removed and placed in saline solution. Tell us about that. Uh, yes, uh, of course, because we work with guts, we get to see them in action, right? Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, uh, just yesterday at a scientific seminar, I had the opportunity to see like how it is that when the gut is taken out in uh, in sailing, uh, and in its place in sailing, it has a life of its own. It moves around like a worm, you know. Um, so it's, it's it's just fascinating to see that this um, pipe that lives inside of us it, it also has a life of its own. Mm. <laughs> it's a little squirmy uh, to think about. But uh, so uh, a friend of mine asked this question. I think it's a good one. And this may be an iteration of your research or somebody else's research that is yet to come. But in terms of this connection between the gut and the brain, I mean, uh, you know, some people have gastric bypass surgery. Other people have large amounts uh, of their intestines removed for diseases like Crohn's disease. And I, as I say, this may be a future iteration. I don't know whether anybody knows anything about this, but it would seem to me that that would probably affect this whole neural highway that, that connects these two places. Absolutely. And there are reports that patients that have a part of their uh, digestive tract removed, uh, they often have um, a mental health uh uh, changes or changes in their mental mental health, and it shouldn't come to be a surprise because um, when we think about it, we our entire bodies kind of have been built around food, right? Uh, in fact, uh, it is the food that that we continuously eat. The cliche is that we are what we eat, but if we think about it, we need to eat food to be able to provide the building blocks of the cells, the tissues, the organs uh, that make us, that are constantly renewing themselves, right? So one of the one of the frontiers, other frontiers of this kind of research actually uh, involves drugs like Ozempic, which is, of course, the now the weight loss drug of choice among, <laughs> among the glitterati uh, in Hollywood and, and elsewhere. Um, that has something to do with how the gut detects and communicates about the presence of food what do we know about the way the gut is doing that? It, it's it's detecting certain things about certain kinds of food, right? Absolutely, and those advances in uh, uh, this type of uh, therapies, therapeutic treatments, uh, have brought up like how prominent and how important it is the biology of the gut for our entire uh, well-being. Uh, and what is fascinating is that, in fact, in the in the case of uh, some of these drugs, what they are targeting is the 
ability, the sensory ability of the gut to respond to food. So how does it respond to nutrients? Then it will communicate to the brain. And then the brain will compute that information and then will say like, hmm, perhaps I don't need to eat as much, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just imagining the world 10 or 15 years from now. I mean, it's really quite possible that we'll be thinking about some of these things differently. We might be looking at a disease like anorexia, uh, which we pretty much treat uh, as a psychological disorder with huge physical consequences, uh, but we might be looking at it very differently, right, as something that's actually starting in the gut and then feeding the emotions associated with anorexia? Absolutely, uh, Colin. And I think that we are just beginning to touch of uh, the renaissance of an entire new era without sounding, sounding too futuristic or um, and also not too speculative. But if you think about it, what... Uh, the difference between us as humans and machines are feelings, right? Mm -hmm. And the feelings largely come are, and are influenced from our visceral sensations. When I was describing the gut and telling, describing in words, I will say that we have this living creature moving inside of us. You said, uh, sounds a little bit squirmy, right? Mm -hmm. That's probably because you felt it before you articulated <laughs> the squirmy word. You felt that, right. ooh, <laughs> that sounds crazy, right? <laughs> Uh, so, uh, in the future, I believe that we are going to start to understand a little bit more of how it is that not only the gut, but the heart uh, and other organs are encoding uh, these uh, feelings and influence our emotions and our uh, reactions, you know. So, beyond just talking only about disease, but how it is that it influences the well-being of these organs, it influences our um overall well-being and, of course, our mental well-being on a daily basis. I mean, when when um, psychologists, psychiatrists, other researchers study decision-making, they often find that decision-making is made on what we might call a very snap judgment basis, often without a lot of tr a tremendous amount of information. Uh, I know there have been researchers like Drew Weston who look at have people look at pictures of political candidates and tell them nothing about them. And the people make up their minds about the political candidates yeah. with absolutely nothing that we would call information. You might say, Diego, oh, no, there's information. It's just coming from a different sector of the, of the body and self. Uh, you put it uh, very well, uh, Colin. In fact, in uh, some of my, my uh, lecture tours, uh, whenever I describe this topic, I say that, uh, have you noticed that when you go to the supermarket, somehow magically the milk that you need and that uh, you wanted to go and buy is like way all the way in the back next <laughs> to the restrooms. But as you fought through the whole line and everything and you got back to the cashier, all of a sudden magically without even realizing your hand reached out and perhaps put a Kit Kat on the on the basket, and by the time that you get to the parking lot, you have eaten like two or three or those bars without even realizing what happened, right? So essentially, we are uh, what we feel. All right. So when Luke Skywalker says, as he repeatedly does, I've got a bad feeling about this, it might make some <laughs> sense to pay attention to what Luke Skywalker is saying. It make me wonder what is uh, what is inside of the gut of Luke Skywalker, Skywalker right? <laughs> that is something that we will probably never know. This is fascinating stuff, and I really do encourage people to listen to the TED Talk or watch the TED Talk. Uh, Diego Borges, Borges, thank you so much. Uh, gut brain neuroscientist associated with the Duke School of Medicine. Thank you so much for your time today. 
Thank you so much, uh, Colin, and thank you, everyone, for listening. And have a very nice dinner, too. Uh, thank you. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. We're going to take a little break here, and then we're going to look at the history of this. This idea, you know, there's a reason why we said my meal didn't agree with me. Uh, it's because this idea has been a lo- around for a long time. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Oh, my stomach's tight of nights. I'm afraid of what I find if you and I talk tonight. All right, we're back. Uh, So joining us now is Elsa Richardson, historian of health and medicine and author of the forthcoming book, Rumbles, A Curious History of the Gut. I would also say that uh, in the course of researching Elsa to get ready for this interview, I discovered that she's prominently associated with something called the Scottish Gut Project. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for chuckling about that, but then you just chuckled too. So, um, so I think that's it's only fair. Uh, probably, if they did need so much haggis, uh, there'd be no need for this project. Um, so, so yes, the you know, on the one hand, you we just heard Diego uh, talking about all of the things that they're discovering, and they absolutely are, and it's a very exciting frontier. From another point of view, though, they're discovering stuff that's mentioned on 16th century BC Egyptian pharmaceutical papyrus uh, accounts. This idea has been around a long time, the idea that kind of everything starts in the gut. I don't know. Where do you want to start talking about this? I guess that's a good enough place to start. I mean, I think you had to speak to you know, your previous guest, there's so much thrilling research going on at the moment around the gut-brain axis. Um, and as a historian, you know, I look at that and think this is really wonderful, but also that it feels like a rediscovery rather than a discovery. So I think, you know, one of the places that we could look back to might be like the foundations of Western medicine, right, to the ancient Greeks. So for the for the Greeks, they had this model of the body, which uh, suggested that we have a kind of what they describe as a tripartite soul, so we have a kind of three part, uh, a three part soul rather than um, rather than everything being kind of held uh, in the head. So uh, the, we have the rational soul that resides in the brain, and then there's the sensitive soul, which is kind of finds a home in the heart, and then what they describe as the vegetative soul, which is usually found in the stomach. Um, and so, you know, for the Greeks, the kind of higher functions 
are still attributed to the brain. Um, but they also thought that intelligence resided elsewhere in the body, right? So, uh, you know, the kind of founder of uh, Western medicine, Galen, was convinced that the stomach was also intelligent, right? So he had this idea about the intelligent gut, which we hear about so much now. And the reason that he thought the gut was intelligent was that it was like capable of registering its own end in emptiness. You know, it could tell you when it was empty. And so he suggested that this proved that there was like not just intelligence in the head, but a kind of bodily intelligence. Um, so this vision of a kind of dispersed intelligence is one that really like persists in Western medicine until the 17th century, when there's these kind of new understandings of um, anatomy and the nerves that challenge it. But I think that maybe part of what's going on in gut science now um, is about a kind of rediscovery of this dispersed intelligence. Yeah, it's a, it's a holistic view that we've mm. sort of circled back to. So uh, before we get to the 17th century, we don't want to skip uh, over the medieval period where the gut was seen as vulnerable to demonic possession. Fortunately, uh, also we have a, a recording uh, of a medieval barber. Barbers were often uh, doctors in, in medieval times uh, mm -hmm. explaining to one of his patients, how, this is going to be a B2, cat, B2. You know, medicine is not an exact science, but we're learning all the time. Why, why just 50 years ago, we would have thought your daughter's illness was brought on by demonic possession or witchcraft. <laughs> but nowadays, we know that Isabel is suffering from an imbalance of bodily humors perhaps caused by a toad or a small dwarf living in her stomach. Okay, that was actually Steve Martin, but playing Theodorica of York. Uh, and so he's not too far off. He's going for the laughs, but he's not too far off. The, in medieval times, there were some rather odd thoughts about what's going on there in the stomach. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in the course of my research, what I was really struck by was the fact that, you know, I think today we tend to talk about this gut and the gut-brain axis as a kind of generally quite a friendly relationship. You know, we think of the gut as being a kind of, uh, you know, a garden that has to be tended and a relationship that has to be kind of worked on. And what I found um, through history, and particularly in the medieval period, was like a really quite a different model of um, the stomach, one in which the stomach was seen as being the site of like, you know, demonic possession, that it was particularly vulnerable to um, kind of bad uh, omens, uh, witchcraft, and so on. I guess that one of the places that it comes apparent, I mean, there's two things that I love. One, you know, as a, as a kind of, um, as a meat avoider myself, there's this really wonderful um, uh, work of philosophy that's published in this period, which kind of advocates not eating meat on the grounds that meat comes uh, in kind of infested with uh, demons that once imbibed will kind of take uh, you know, take root in the stomach and start kind of start sending out kind of noxious, bloating gases, belching and like flatulence. Um, but it was also, I mean, I think quite prominently associated with um, the witchcraft trials. So with these kind of witchcraft trials that took place across Europe um, from uh, the late 14th and early 15th century onwards, in which like questions of like consumption and digestion um, were really essential to those who were being accused of um, practicing black magic. 
So I guess, you know, this is, can be seen in two ways. So one, you know, food is both uh, a tool in the practice of magic, right? So like think about the herbs that are gathered for spells and so on, and also like a target of witchcraft, so which is being accused of poisoning food or souring milk. And again and again in these witchcraft trials, the gut is, you know, figured as this site in which, you know, the kind of devil gets in, in a way. And then even more straightforwardly, um, bloated stomachs, so just to have a bloated stomach, um, was seen as evidence of demonic possession. So this idea that demons, um, the demons who are naturally drawn to excrement, to dirt and corruption, um, would naturally find a home kind of somewhere down in the depths, in the guts. Um, so yeah, I think it's just interesting to think of this earlier relationship between the, with the gut, which really figures it as a kind of, um, as like a danger to um, the soul, a danger to the spirit. Right. So before you order that flame-broiled Whopper, consider where the flames come from. The flames exactly. may come from demons in hell. Um, so exercise <laughs> caution. So we, as we get into the Enlightenment, we talk less about demons, but we don't stop talking about the gut. And there is almost this centuries-long predilection, uh, preoccupation, excuse me, with what's going on in the gut and what in particular is going on with constipation and what might happen to your blood uh, if it became contaminated by the depraved remains uh, of concoctions in the intestines. Uh, the personal physician to Louis the Fifteenth uh, of France in the 18th century uh, was very concerned about those things. And then as we go along, we can talk about some other people who, are, who were as well. But you know, we run into this term uh, intestinal auto intoxication, yeah. uh, and and so there's there's this idea, right, that it's just what's sitting there down in your gut, down in your intestines, in particular, could be quite dangerous even without the aid of demons. Yeah, I think that I mean, and also you know, just as you were speaking there, I was thinking that there really is a link back to that idea of the demonic gut in a sense, because they're both this idea of the demonic gut, right, where demons can lie in, in wait. And then this idea of the gut that emerges later in uh, in kind of modern into kind of the beginnings of modern medicine and from the 18th century onwards, of the gut as a as a site of kind of there's something a bit grubby, a bit filthy about the gut. You know, this is still the source of kind of toxicity in the body. And certainly, the theory of auto intoxication really speaks pretty kind of clearly to that. So I've been really fascinated with this figure. Um, the wonderfully named um, William Arbuthnot Lane, who was a, um, a surgeon uh, that practiced in late 19th century, early 20th century Britain. And he was kind of, his kind of career was, I mean, ultimately ruined by what became a kind of almost maniacal um, obsession with constipation. So he became convinced um, that constipation was, you know, he was seeing these patients and he was convinced that constipation was really more than like just a discomfort or something embarrassing, but that rather constipation constituted a kind of really serious public health crisis that was um, engulfing um, the West, like Western nations, particularly Britain and particularly America. And, you know, his reasoning for this was around this idea of auto-intoxication. So this idea of auto-intoxication, which says that, you know, um, if you have kind of half-digested 
uh, matter sitting in your system for too long, um, eventually what will happen is that the, that matter will kind of putrefy, become quite toxic and start to leak out of the gut into the rest of the body. And along the way, it will start kind of um, poisoning um, and sowing kind of disease. So he basically held auto-intoxication, this um, theory of auto-intoxication, helped him to explain, you know, everything. So he attributed it stomach pain to it, muscle pain, um, baldness, <laughs> excessive pers perspiration, arthritis, all the way up to kind of, um, you know, really serious conditions like cancer. Yeah. So for him, auto-intoxication was basically, you know, um, a threat to the, the well-being of the West. Right. And so this had some pretty significant consequences, as you say, for his career. It mm -hmm. had more immediate consequences for his family, uh, including his pet parrot and pet monkey. Uh, you better tell us about this. Yeah. So um, he... I mean, he was just so upset. I mean, you can imagine living with this man, absolutely obsessed with constipation and obsessed with the regularity of his family. And he was obsessed with the regularity of his family to such a degree that, degree that he made his whole family take a large tablespoon of paraffin oil before they went to bed, paraffin oil being something that is you know, a quite uh, dramatic laxative. Um, but his whole family included a small monkey and a pet, pet parrot. And I just, you know, I really feel for the monkey and that horribly flatulent parrot. <laughs> well, they're going to make they're going to make noise out of one end to the other. Those, those parrots. So, um, so can I do a little commercial for um, for William Arbuthnot Lane uh, just for a second here? Because yes, all of this stuff is true. Uh, although, but I just started watching. There's a new uh, TV series called The Artful Dodger, and it takes Dickens as Artful Dodger and it puts him in Australia as a as a young man who has escaped from from uh, England, and he's sort of become a doctor. Uh, and um, I've only watched the first episode, but I swear to God, I watched the first episode and then I started reading uh, up for this interview, and I realized I think they do a procedure that was invented by Lane that has nothing to do. Uh, with uh, intestinal auto-intoxication because one of the areas where he was kind of a breakthrough guy was the whole idea of hooks and screws and wires in compound fractures uh, after Lister develops, uh, you know, some kind of way, some kind of antiseptic process. Um, I think it's Lane who starts doing a thing where he kind of opens the patient up and kind of puts the bone back together with some outside mm -hmm. materials. So... You know, I mean, he was kind of a crank about the about the intestines, but maybe he had some other virtues. Oh my God, yeah, absolutely. And you know, he was a complete like he was a wonderful pioneer in the field of orthopedics, and also I would say neonatal care. So mm -hmm. he really had this quite kind of glittering career. Uh, you know, he was Sir William Arbuthnot Lane, yes. and he was made he was given that um, peerage for his work during the First World War. Um, on the battlefields. So he, you know, he was really kind of an establishment, very, very, very well-respected surgeon. At some point, he was surgeon to the royal family. So he, you know, he's not a kind of, he was not in any way a marginal figure. And I would also um, stress that this theory of auto-intoxication also was not that marginal either. So mm -hmm. it was not particularly unorthodox. I mean, you can see someone like, you know, if we come to the States, someone like um, John Harvey Kellogg, right, the Kellogg brothers, who, 
is this kind of health reformer, you know, famous um, anti-masturbation campaign. <laughs> I was going to, you know, I was going to have to go there if you didn't. So, oh, no. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for taking that. I was right. always going to go there. Yeah. Um, he And he invented, basically the invention of the cornflake right. um, is partly due to the theory of auto-intoxication, right? So he invents the, con- the cornflake with the aim of introducing more fiber into the American diet and therefore staving off this kind of coming uh, epidemic of constipation that Kellogg also saw as threatening the, the health and well-being of their na- of the nation. Yeah, there's this kind of late 19th century, early 20th century wellness movement in America that includes mm-hmm. Kellogg and a whole bunch of other people. Well, actually Graham from the Graham Cracker. Yeah. Um, and and there, a lot of their obsession is with bowels. You know, if we can fix the bowels, do something about the bowels. And, you know, in terms of Lane, you know, another renowned uh, – American medical figure, Dr. Gwyneth Paltrow, is one of the many people who has. <laughs> I mean, what are people doing right now? They're doing juice cleanses. Also, <laughs> there's this. It didn't. It didn't go away in 1910. I mean, you have to pay a lot of money to have, you know, profuse diarrhea <laughs> to fix your bowels right here in 2023. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think there's a really direct link that one can draw between this theory of auto-intoxication, which does, you know, eventually kind of fall out of favor uh, towards, you know, the kind of 1920s. You can see it kind of, you know, becoming more and more marginal. But you can see a direct link between that and I think something like the much kind of contested and debated idea of the leaky gut, right? So the leaky gut syndrome uh, is something which, you know, um, is being uh, kind of... um, you know, is being uh, marketized by various kind of health um, and well-being um, companies um, as a kind of explanation for things like IBS or the Crohn's disease, which basically suggests, similarly to auto-intoxication, that there is a kind of porousness in the bowel, right? And that, you know, um, substances can leak out and cause all sorts of kind of upset. Um, and without getting into the kind of ins and outs of you know the, the 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 scientific validity of that or not, I think that it's interesting that both of them, auto intoxication and leaky gut syndrome, both rely again on the this imaginary of the gut as toxic, right? Mm-hmm. As kind of like a like as somewhere where disease and illness lies, which I think is also where this kind of the juice cleanse, what the juice cleanse speaks to, right? This idea that it is possible to kind of cleanse oneself, to purify oneself, and kind of scrub the gut. So a little bit later in the 20th century, the gut gets a rebrand, and uh, it stops being so toxic, and it starts being the seat of really effective instincts, especially instincts associated with leadership. We talked a little bit about some of this stuff with Diego, but I think it's also... I think there's something gendered about it. There's a way that the masculine leadership in particular uh, is embodied uh, in, in all this. So uh, I'm going to give you a little clip to react to. Cat, uh, this is B1. Because that's where the truth comes from, ladies and gentlemen. The gut. Do you know you have more nerve endings in your stomach than in your head? Look it up. Now somebody's going to say, I did look that up and it's wrong. Well, mister, that's because you looked it up in a book. (laughs) Next time, try looking it up in your gut. (laughs) I did. And my gut tells me that's how our nervous system works. 
So that's uh, Stephen Colbert uh, posturing as a kind of a fake right-wing pundit on his old show, The Colbert Report. But he didn't just pull that out of thin air or somewhere else. Uh, he's he's talking about an attitude that you, you hear in leaders like Trump, right, that their gut is worth more than an awful lot of more documented evidence. Um, give us kind of your take on all that. I just, that truly, I mean, I don't know if wonderful is the right way to describe it. But Trump once said um, something along the lines of, my gut tells me more sometimes than anyone else's brain can ever tell me. And I feel like, you know, as well as being uh, kind of hilarious, I think that that does speak to um, this kind of idea that there is a kind of gut feeling, a gut instinct um, that is associated with a particular brand of masculinity, a kind of manliness that is associated with the gut. I think it's particularly telling that, for example, uh, that, you know, if you go to the Oxford English Dictionary today to and look up, um, you know, the phrase to have guts, it's really telling, I think, that the, all the examples to illustrate the, the usage of this colloquialism refer only to men, right? So I feel like there's this kind of gendering of this idea of gut feeling or gut instinct as being a particularly masculine attribute. I guess for me, one of the places that I trace that to is around the kind of First World War. And uh, I think around, interestingly, I think around the anxieties that were provoked by the First World War in terms of questions of like national fitness, right? You know, there are all of these new conscripts and it seems that perhaps um, Britain and America in particular are not as kind of fighting fit as uh, they might have thought they were. I think that around that time, there becomes two things start to happen. One, there's this kind of demonization of the fleshy belly, the male fleshy belly. So the kind of, you know, the 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 kind of slight paunch <laughs> as being um, something which is a sign of kind of weakness, uh, both moral and physical. And uh, with that, uh, kind of re-inscribing of the stomach as being and of the guts as being kind of a metaphor for courage and for kind of masculine endurance. So there's this wonderful phrase, um, intestinal fortitude, that gets coined around this time by a professor um, of clinical medicine at Ohio State University. And he kind of comes up with this phrase when he's traveling back uh, to his office after coaching the college football team. Um, and he describes how his thoughts on kind of football and sport mingles with the lecture that he's about to give on physiology and brings this new expression, intestinal fortitude, to mind. And it, this expression took on really quickly uh, and had a kind of special resonance for young men that were beginning to be called up to fight in the First World War. Um, yeah, so I think it's really significant that, like, I think gut instinct remains, and I think you can see it with someone like Trump, uh, remains. I don't know, the preserve of a particular kind of masculinity. Elsa Richardson, this is fascinating stuff. Uh, we can't wait for Rumbles, A Curious History of the Gut, to come out. Maybe you'll come back at that time. I feel as though you and I have more to say to one another. A historian of health and uh, medicine and, yes, author of the forthcoming book, Rumbles, A Curious History of the Gut. Thank you for having this conversation with me. We're going to finish the show in just a second talking a little bit about what you might or might not want to eat to have a positive effect on all this. Well, I want to go and I ought to go, but I just can't go. It's causing so much frustration, this constipation. 
constipation. I've been eating fiber and avoiding cheese. I've been praying to God down on my knees. And thanks to Cat Pastor, our technical technical producer today. Uh, this idea uh, for a show was uh, first conceived by our intern Leticia Peters uh, and McCusker uh, has carried it uh, on to fruition. Thanks to both of them. We're now going to talk to Julie Balsamo, uh, a gut health dietitian. Uh, you might uh, know her from Nutrition by Julie on TikTok, uh, but other places as well. Uh, Julie, welcome to our conversation. Thank you. So we've covered a lot of ground here, but I think a lot of people are also thinking, so what do I do now? Um, one thing they might not want to do is just grab the first probiotic supplement that they see off the shelf, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's correct. Say why. So when it comes to probiotics, probiotics are almost like medications where certain medications are going to treat certain symptoms. So when we're talking about probiotics, if you have a specific digestive issue you're trying to address, you want to make sure that you're taking the right strain. You know, for example, if you are on antibiotics, a lot of times people will go towards something like Espolarde, which is resistant to antibiotics. So it really is case-to-case specific. Um, and I think a lot of times, especially if you are someone who struggles with a lot of digestive issues, sometimes probiotics can actually worsen symptoms. So it's something you just want to be a little bit more careful with. Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, this is this was information for me. I never understood that, and I just take whatever uh, probiotic I can get after yeah. I take an antibiotic. So uh, <laughs> thank you for making me smarter. Um, there are some things that are really helpful, too, though. I mean, for example, omega-3 fish oil, that kind of stuff. It actually is real and does something. Yeah. So omega-3's main purpose of that one would be for inflammatory purposes. So we know that when our gut is inflamed, it can cause inflammation also throughout the rest of our body. Sometimes that could be inflected in our skin health as well. With omega-3s, quality definitely does matter. We can also get omega-3s through our diet, foods like fatty fishes, walnut. Um, but when we're talking about supplement form, um, like I said, we want to be looking at quality. So we want to make sure it's third-party tested. We also want to make sure that we're getting a decent amount of EPA and DHA specifically, uh, because some of those omega-3 supplements in the market really aren't going to do too much in terms of reducing inflammation unless they're actually at a high enough dose. Important to get a lot of this stuff right, too, for many reasons, uh, many of them covered already here, but somewhere around 70% of the immune system is located in the gut, right? So you want to do things that will be helpful to the uh, immune cells that are interacting with your microbiome. Correct. Yeah. I think uh, that's one thing that's not talked about very often is just how close the two of all those are together. And especially as we're kind of going into the winter season where we tend to see, you know, more illnesses kind of popping up. I think focusing on your gut is actually a really, really great way to support your immune system. So there are some less expensive um, methods to do some of this. For example, chewing your food, but say something yeah. about chew, chew, chew. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I think a lot of times we're searching for these complex answers when it comes to digestive issues, but sometimes it's it's as simple as just chewing our food. We tend to live in a world where we're very go, go, go. You know, we're eating on the run. We're not taking time to actually sit down and enjoy our food. And if you think about it, our stomach does not have teeth. So if we are not chewing our food, we are making it that much harder for our body to actually uh, digest the food and be able to absorb and utilize those nutrients. So as a general rule of thumb, what I usually recommend is try 
try to chew until your food is an applesauce-like consistency, um, which it, it is probably going to feel painfully slow at first, but that alone can make a huge difference. And I can't tell you how many times when I start working with people, that single tip can be a game changer in terms of how they're feeling after meals. Right. Uh, anything that we uh, say too fast, it's on Julie's TikTok. The whole thing about applesauce uh, is there. I saw it this morning. Um, I often will make a nice salad full of raw things for us to have along with whatever we're having for dinner. I might not be doing the gut a huge favor. I mean, salads are great, but raw things are tougher on the gut, right? Yeah. And that's uh, kind of where it comes down to the idea of what is considered healthy, but what is healthy for someone with a sensitive stomach? You know, if everything is working the way that it should be, you know, maybe you can tolerate larger amounts of, you know, raw produce. That being said, for those who are dealing with a lot of digestive issues or maybe something like SIBO, having a lot of raw veggies is going to trigger and worsen symptoms because essentially it is a lot harder for our body to break down um, and there's going to be some more fermentation going on. Um, and obviously, diversity is good, too. Don't just eat carrots every night. You need to be alternating and mixing lots of different things, right? Yeah. So plant diversity, um, again, one of those things that I don't think is talked about as often as it should be. So when we're talking about our gut microbiome, we have the bacteria that live in our gut, which we're getting those probiotics. Then we need a food source or an energy source for the bacteria so that they can survive and thrive. And that's where prebiotics kind of come into the picture. Prebiotics are going to come from our plant-based foods. So different prebiotics are going to feed different probiotics in our gut microbiome. So if we are are only eating the, you know, same types of produce on repeat every single week, we're doing our gut a disservice. So as a general kind of guide, what I recommend is try to get 30 different plant-based foods each week. So this could be nuts. It could be seeds. It could be fruits, vegetables, whole grains, different spices, a lot of ways that we can incorporate more plant diversity, but it can be a fun kind of challenge to do. Um, I know for myself, when I first tried this, I was eating the same things on repeat. I had gotten comfortable making certain uh, veggies for dinner. And so I did not have a lot of diversity in my diet. So it can be a fun challenge to kind of see where you're at. And then you have a really great place to build from. Right. We're going to have to stop there, although uh, maybe you can come back sometime. There's a lot of other things we didn't get to talk about, including maybe the big $48 canister of green powder is a really good, good place to start. Don't <laughs> get me started with that one. <laughs> well, we'll get you started with it next time because I, I really would like to talk about this. But thank you so much for the time that you spent with us today. Today, And uh, definitely people check out Nutrition by uh, Julie if you are a TikTok person, Julie Balsamo. Thank you so much for being part of today's show. Thank the rest of you for listening. We will be back tomorrow. Doesn't matter what you have.